0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Promise Fulfilled. I want to encourage you to turn either in your Bibles or your mobile device to John chapter 1 today. The title of the message is The Promise Fulfilled. John chapter 1 today. And as you are turning to John chapter one, I just wanna say we're really excited about our new service time starting the weekend of January 13th and 14th. We're excited about the Saturday night service coming up on January 13th. We know a lot of people work on Sundays and so they're really happy we've made this decision. So be in prayer for our new service time starting in mid-January. John chapter one. If you found that, just look at me and smile really big so I know we can keep going. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, the greatest story ever told starts on that first Christmas morning 2,000 years ago when God, you so loved the world, you gave your one and only son. We've gotten way off track, Lord, as far as what is the true meaning of Christmas. And it's so refreshing to be part of a local church that believes the Bible and the stories in the Bible, specifically this story, this true story, this fact of history that your son came to planet Earth to seek and save those who were lost. We admit, Lord, that We all are in desperate need of you. We're in desperate need of a savior. And it's when we come to the end of ourselves and realize our need and run in repentance and faith into your open arms that we receive not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge, a relationship, and we become one with you. So thank you for this gift that keeps on giving. Speak to us now as we once again look at this our greatest story ever told, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, in last week's message, we talked about the promise of the Christ. Remember, in the Jewish Bible, we call it the Old Testament. And we looked specifically at 20 Old Testament prophecies in the Jewish Bible um, calling for a future Messiah. And so we specifically also looked at one uh, uh, prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote this, this we, we covered this last week, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, we went through each one of these names last week, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father Prince of Peace. That's what God led Isaiah in the 8th century BC in the Old Testament uh, to prophesy uh, about the promise foretold of the Christ. If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go back on our website, check it out. You can watch it or listen to it, or just download our Calvary PSL podcast and you can listen to these messages every single week. And so last week we looked at how the promise was foretold. In the Old Testament, today, Christmas Eve, it's all about how the promise was fulfilled in the pages of the New Testament. And so in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we see the primary points of this greatest story ever told, this fact of history, the fact that God so loved the world he gave his one and only son. I'm gonna give you the primary points, not all the points, but the primary points of the Christmas story from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Okay, and so one day you have this angel, his name is Gabriel, and he appears to this young Jewish virgin, her name of course is Mary. Mary is betrothed or engaged to a very honorable man, his name was Joseph. And so Joseph and Mary lived separately in this town up in Galilee called Nazareth, and they, because they were engaged, were looking forward to the day when they could become one as husband and wife. And when Gabriel, the angel, suddenly appeared to Mary, he had the most astounding news of all the Jewish women in the lineage of David. Mary had been chosen by God. What a high honor. Mary had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. And she was shocked, and she couldn't believe it, and she said to this angel, you know, how can this be? How can I be the, become the mother of the Messiah? I've never been with a man. And Gabriel responded this way. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born will be called the what? The Son of God. And sure enough, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, Mary became pregnant with the Christ. She was ecstatic, she was so happy. Not so much with Joseph. The one that he loved, all of a sudden she's with child, and Joseph was deeply, deeply hurt. He's thinking, how could the love of my life be unfaithful to me? Joseph was a wreck. He was ready to end the relationship until an angel came. In a dream, and said this to Joseph Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph must have been so happy when he woke up the next morning. Yes, Mary hasn't been unfaithful to me. And then he must have also felt the weight of being the the stepfather of the Messiah that had to come crashing down on Joseph. And so we fast forward about seven, eight months or so later and Caesar, Augustus, he gives a royal decree to all of his subjects within the Roman Empire, including his Jewish subjects, way over in this obscure part of the world called Galilee and Judea. And the royal decree was that everybody had to return to their hometown to register for taxes. And so in response to the decree, Joseph loads up the donkey, he takes his engaged sweetheart, Mary. And he puts her on the donkey and they make their way from Nazareth, way up in Galilee, all the way down to Bethlehem because King David's hometown was Bethlehem and Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Now, we don't know which route they took. If you ever go with us to Israel, there's actually a route that you can take um, on a donkey um, and and go with what they think may be the same way. We don't really know which way they went, but the trip could have been up to 100 miles, which tells us that that trip would have taken eight to 10 days walking. I'm sure that Joseph was was leading the donkey, Mary's on the donkey. And they arrived down in Bethlehem just as Mary goes into labor. I personally think that that trip probably caused Mary to go in labor. So ladies, if you're pregnant and your child is late, Here's what you do, get on a donkey. (laughs) Start in Port St. Lucie. And the same distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem is about from PSL to Fort Lauderdale. And I'm sure by the time you get to Fort Lauderdale, you'll be ready to have the baby. So Joseph knew, man, the baby's coming soon. And so he goes to the village inn, the kataluma in the Greek, and he's knocking on the door. He, he knows he's gotta get a room because Mary's about to pop. She's about to have the Christ child. Now scholars, when they look at the ancient world, they, they believe that these katalumas, these village inns, were all over the ancient world in m- most of the towns at that time. And these katalumas, these, these ancient inns, we learned this in Israel, by the way, uh, when we were visiting Bethlehem, our guide, who is a Messianic Jew, uh, taught us this. But these, these ancient inns, well, they were used for travelers in these ancient towns uh, and for their animals. And so the second story of the inn is where the people lodged and the first story is where they kept the angels in, in kind of a, I'm sorry, the, the angels. Wow, I'm, I'm rushing because of time. It's where they kept the animals, not the angels. <laughs> Down on the first level, of the inn in a stable like environment. And so you know the story. There's no room in the upstairs portion of the inn. And so Joseph has to take Mary to the ground level, the stable where the animals lodged. And that's where the Christ child was born. Luke tells us this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a what? Because there was no room in the end. What's a manger? A feeding trough. trough. Somebody's been studying their Bible. (laughs) An animal feeding trough. And so can you imagine Joseph delivers Jesus and, and he's like, where am I gonna lay this kid? And he sees a trough and I'm sure he had to clean it out, right? And then he had to get some new straw and put it in. And he lays Jesus in an animal feeding trough. What a humble beginning for the one who would be called King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And that night, the angels, of course, they have this party in the sky, a party over one of the fields just outside of Bethlehem. And they alerted the shepherds that were in that field, you got to go see the newborn king of Israel, and the shepherds did exactly that. Now, if you've been studying your Bible, you know that not that night, but months later, perhaps a year or more later, magi came from Persia, from the east, following a star, Aster in the Greek, not an actual star, but a but Probably, I, I feel, the Shekinah glory, the, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And if they follow the star, and it says in Matthew 2, nine through 11, that this aster hovers over the house, not a stable, not a kataluma, not an inn, hovers over the house of Joseph and Mary. And so the magi, months later after Jesus was born, walk into this home and they see now the toddler Jesus, and you remember what they did. They fell down, and they worshiped him, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men worshiped Jesus, and wise men and women today still worship Jesus. I'm so glad you're here today on Christmas Eve. You know why you're here? You're here to worship Jesus. Jesus, you're wise, you and I aren't perfect, we're far from perfect, but we got enough wisdom from God to worship his son. And So those are some of the primary points of the Christmas story from Matthew and Luke. But there's another account of the Christmas story that we cannot forget. And that other account, of course, is found in the Gospel of John, and that's where we're gonna spend the remainder of our time together today. So check out, please, John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is mind-blowing, verse three. All Things, that's the material universe, were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He talks about John the Baptist, and then we go down to verse nine, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming, here's John's version of the Christmas story, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's Israel, and his own people did not receive him. And by the way, that's not all Jews. Of course it's not all Jews. Many thousands of Jews received him but the religious establishment of the day rejected him. Look at verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so even though John's account doesn't mention Mary and Joseph, doesn't mention Bethlehem in the manger, doesn't mention the angels and the shepherds, it doesn't even mention the star and the magi, it's still a beautiful, profound uh, a, a part of the Christmas story. So John goes back further in time than his friends Matthew and Luke. John goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, and then in verse 14, he tells us what Christmas is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what Christmas is all about. Please look at verse 14 again. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you're taking notes, what is the true meaning of Christmas? It's right here. The eternal word, please say eternal. Eternal. The eternal word left heaven. He clothed himself in human flesh and he dwelt among us. That's Christmas. It's not primarily about Santa Claus or reindeers or going to the mall or buying a thousand gifts for people. It's not about the consumerism. It's not about everybody trying to make a buck. It's not about being stuck in traffic for... 30 minutes at Jensen Beach Mall while you're trying to get out after you've waited till the last minute to shop. Christmas is not about any of that. Christmas is about the eternal word. In fact, we're gonna all say it together on the count of three, you ready? Just the bottom half of the screen, one, two, three. The eternal word left heaven clothed himself in human flesh, and dwelt with us. That statement should make us do what the Magi did, and that is to fall down and worship Jesus Christ. So if you're glad he came, let them know right now how happy you are that he came to save us. That's Christmas. And so we're gonna focus on one a little bit deeper here. Look at verse one. This is so profound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, at the creation of the universe, was the Word, the Logos in the Greek. Okay, who was the Word? You know who the Word was, Jesus. Okay, and so we're gonna replace, I've done this before, we're gonna replace the phrase, the Word, with the name Jesus. All you have to do is say Jesus three times when I point at you. You ready for this? Okay, so in the beginning was? Jesus. And? Jesus. Was with God and? Jesus. Was God. All right, that's the good news. The bad news is that there's been religious people, by the way, for the better part of church history, who have decided that Jesus was not God, and in the New World Translation used by the Jehovah Witnesses, John chapter 1, verse one in their Bible says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a, God, little g. You need to know if you're new to Christianity and new to the Bible that that statement That translation violates the basic rules of Greek grammar and it changes God's word in the original language to fit their false view that Jesus was a created being. That's by the way why I gave him a little frowny face there. (laughs) What do real Greek scholars say about this translation? I'm just gonna quote one. Dr. Charles L. Feinberg said, quote, I can assure you that the rendering which the Jehovah Witnesses give John 1-1 is not held by any reputable Greek scholar. So what's the correct translation? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? (laughs) Was God. And by the way, not just the ESV, but the, King James Version, the New King James Version, the the NIV, the the New American Standard Bible, all solid Orthodox translations say the Word was God and that's why they get a smiley face. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about God's Word in the original language and people changing it to fit their doctrine? That's scary, and it's something we should be upset about. Okay, and so as we go deeper into this verse, you need to know that each time we see the word was, okay, so check it out, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Every time you see that word was, it's in the uh, imperfect tense. What does that mean? That indicates continual existence. And that's why the New Living Translation translates John 1:1 like this. In the beginning, the word already existed. That's continual existence. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And so for that excellent translation of the Greek, the New Living Translation gets a smiley face as well. And so one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith is the deity of Christ. It is what separates true Christianity from every world, religion, and cult. And it's been, ladies and gentlemen, this has been important throughout church history. And so during the first part of the fourth century AD, I wanna go back in time, I wanna tell you an important story about how this doctrine was under attack. But in the early part of the fourth century AD, a priest by the name of Arius, he denied the essential truth that Jesus is divine. Arius decided, concerning the word of the Logos, he decided this. He said, the Logos is not eternal. This is fourth century AD. Arius, the priest. The Logos is not eternal. God begat him, and before he was begotten, he did not exist, all right? And so this heretical view is called Arianism, which, by the way, was adopted by the Jehovah Witnesses in the late 1800s. A guy named Charles Taz Russell and the Russellites, they adopted this view, this heretical view, called Arianism. Now back to the 4th century AD, you have a bishop named Alexander, one of the heroes of the faith. He hears about Arius, one of his priests, and this false view, and so he calls him in for questioning. And so you got a bishop calling a priest into the office, hey, you got some explaining to do. And so they talked about, hey, what's up with your your view that the Logos is not eternal? They discussed it. Alexander believed that Jesus was not created. He was and is the eternal God. He was and is, listen to this. If you're with me, say amen here. Alexander believed that Jesus was and is of the same substance as God the Father. You see, I wanna illustrate it this way. People like Alexander believe that just like sunlight emanates from the sun, so the Son of God emanates from the Father. Now I have a question for you, just answer it in your heart, okay? The question is this, has there ever been a time when the sun existed but not its light? Has there ever been a time when the sun existed but not its light and the answer is no as long as there's been a sun there's been sunlight and in the same way as long as there's been god the father there has been god the son and just like we would never know a sun exists except because of the light that emanates from it we would never know the father exists unless the son revealed him that's what it says, by the way, in John chapter 1, verse 18. Look at it. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the only God, in the context, that's the word, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him, what? Known. And so that's why Jesus said in John 14:9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because when you see sunlight, you see the sun. And that's why Jesus said in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. And I'm sure Alexander tried his best to persuade this, this young priest. To see Arius, to see that that as long as there's been a son, there's been sunlight, and long as there's been a father, there's been the son. But but Arius would had nothing to do with it, and he denied the deity of Christ, and so Alexander got with some other bishops, and they removed him from his post. That's what you have to do with heretics. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about whether to baptize somebody by immersion or by pouring or by sprinkling. We're not talking about that kind of an issue. We're talking about what is the nature of Jesus Christ, and that's a big deal. And so this led to a division because Arius decided he's upset and he gets a a circle of people around him. By the way, that's what happens a lot in churches. Somebody goes doctrinally off base and then they get a circle of people and the next thing you know, the enemy's working and there's a split in the church. There was a big old split in the fourth century AD that was so big that the emperor, Constantine, had to step in and he called the first ecumenical or first universal council in church history called the Council of Nicaea. And that's 325 A.D. What were they doing? They were discussing a lot of things, but one of the main topics was the deity of Christ. And so about 300 bishops from all over the Roman Empire came to this town called Nicaea, which is modern day Turkey. And they they came uh, they came together from the eastern part where they spoke Greek. Orthodox Church has its roots there. They came from the western part where they spoke Latin. Catholic Church has its roots there. They all came together 325 AD to discuss these things. Now, quick side note. I shared this, uh, I think, a couple years ago, but um, my favorite part of the Nicene, uh, the Council of Nicaea, is that there was a certain bishop there, and his name was Nicholas of Myra. I see a little young person with a hat on. We're talking about something that has to do with that hat right now. And so, Nicholas of Myra. Came to the Council of Nicaea. He was a very generous man, this is a true story. His parents left Nicholas a sizable inheritance, and he loved to be able to give that money away that he received from his parents to poor people, people who were in need. And he would actually go around with bags of money at night, so no one knew who, who it was, and he would drop these bags of money um, on the front porch, or sometimes if the door was open, he'd throw it in, and if the door's locked, sometimes he would drop the bags of money down the chimney. Nicholas of Myra, you can look it up, Bishop, who came to the Council of Nicaea. In Dutch, he's called Sinterklaas, and in English, we call him Santa Claus. He was a happy guy. Do you know why the true Santa Claus, I understand a big legend happened after that and we got way off base, but I'm just telling you the true story of Santa Claus here. Do you know why Santa Claus, the true Santa Claus was so happy? Because he was a giver and not a taker. He was so happy because the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I believe, I have a hunch, that if you and I would become greater givers in 2018, maybe we'd start saying ho, ho, ho more often. (laughs) And so people who have this mentality of a clenched fist and they're stingy, they're the most miserable people in the world. But people like the true Santa Claus who were givers, they were so happy. So the bishops met in Nicaea, They debated one of the most vital doctrines of the Christian faith. Was Jesus the eternal God, or was he just a created being? And by majority vote, I'm happy to say that the bishops upheld what John 1, what we read, actually teaches that Jesus was and is the uncreated eternal God, and I'm also happy to say that Nicholas voted for the deity of Christ. And So during the Council of Nicaea, the church leaders adopted the Nicene Creed, accepted by Catholics and Protestants for the last hundreds and hundreds of years, since the Council of Nicaea in 325. And the Nicene Creed says this, we believe, this is the section about Jesus, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. You see that? Begotten, that's eternal generation, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a creation there. As long as there's been a son, there's been sunlight. As long as there's been a father, there's been a son. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. And for us men, in our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That's truth. That's truth. I get a little emotional because I grew up saying that every week. And I'm glad I did. I really am glad I did. But, but, but there, was a, there was a problem though with me personally. When I said those words as a young man, listen, I was just saying them like someone would recite a poem. And I never stopped to consider the rich meaning behind those words. If you're with me, can you say amen here? Please, please focus in. And so for me, at that time in my life, I knew about Jesus in my head, but I did not know Jesus in my heart. I just said words. Thank God for the words. It's Orthodox Christianity, but I just said the words. Did you know that you can say words like a poem? Protestants do it all the time in what we call the sinner's prayer. So many people just say it like a poem, but there's no true repentance. There's no acknowledgement that Jesus is my only hope because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and there's no submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's no salvation. Yes, we are justified by faith alone, but it's not a head knowledge. It's a heart relationship. So I'm gonna ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're here today. And maybe you know about Jesus in your head, but you don't have a relationship with him in your heart. If that's you, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer, just right where you are in your seats. But here's what I wanna ask you to do. Don't make the mistake I made and just say words. If you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, or you're ready because you've been away from Him for a long time, you're ready to come back to Him on this Christmas Eve, if that's you, you know who you are. I'll lead you in a prayer back to Jesus. I'll even say the words and you can repeat in your heart after me. But listen, they need to be your words from your heart to the Lord. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. It's the acknowledgement that He paid for your sins on the cross and that He's your only hope. And it's an acknowledgement that you're gonna call Him Lord, boss for the rest of your life. And so if that's you in your heart, just say something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I believe you died to pay for my sins so I would not have to pay for my own sins in hell. I believe you rose again the third day and I confess to you as my Lord. Take my life, I'm yours. You are my only hope. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here, then Knowing Christ.